Welcome to Fast Growth Stories, the straight-talking guide for entrepreneurs who want to grow quickly and secure funding. Brought to you by EHE, where entrepreneurs help entrepreneurs. Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fast Growth Stories, the EHE Capital podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by a colleague and somebody I, I probably would start to say is a bit of a friend now. We've met a few times at events. It's Emma Cassidy from DSW Ventures. Hi Emma, how are you? Hi, yeah, I'm good, thanks. It's really great to be here. So yeah, I was going to say like a colleague and I thought, well, actually, we've been at a few events together over the last couple of months. So it doesn't take much for me to call people a friend <laughs> once I met them a few times. And we've had a few nice chats and lunches and drinks together, haven't we? So great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. No problem at all. I've just totally made it sound like... Um, we're a pair of loshes, I think, haven't I? <laughs> That's not. They've all been work. They've all been work-related events, but yeah, and we've had some really interesting chats around your role in DSW and what kind of investments you make. And I just thought it'd be really good to get you on the podcast. We haven't heard from anybody from DSW before, so it would be really good to find out a little bit more about you and the business. And I think that would be a really good place to kick off, if that's okay. Yeah, no problem. So yeah. Like I said, I'm Emma, work for DSW Ventures and I'm an investment executive. I joined just over a year ago in January 2022. So brief background on me, I've got a degree in chemistry. I've worked in programmatic marketing before, before training as a chartered accountant with KPMG. So mostly finance background. And I did a brief stint at the co-op working as a financial accountant there. So DSW Ventures itself. We're a VC based in Manchester and we've been investing in regional startups since 2018. And our focus in the regions is basically anywhere in the UK outside of the Golden Triangle. So a brief sort of thing about what, how much we invest in companies. So we'll typically write checks of up to a million pounds and that's in rounds of up to two million. So we often co-invest with either angels, other VCs, or even universities, if, if we're looking at spin-outs. What's important to know is all of our investments need to be either SEIS or EIS qualifying. For anyone not aware, they're just tax reliefs that investors get when they invest in an early stage company. So for every £1 invested, an investor would be able to claim back 50p on their income tax under SEIS or 30p under EIS. And there's also some other benefits with capital gains tax too, but I won't go into those and bore you. So historically, we've only invested under EIS qualifying businesses, but we've actually just announced today, 23rd of March, that we are launching our first ever SEIS fund. So we've just started raising for that today and we're looking to do the earlier stage investments and then what you might see in our current portfolio. But the general thesis and criteria is the same. We're, we're sector agnostic. So our current portfolio, we've got 11 companies and these are across a range of sectors. So we've got B2B software, some data insights, consumer marketplaces, and then some uni spin outs, which is more on the deep tech and life science side. So we do like to look at everything. But I suppose with our SEIS funds that's coming into play, We'll be looking at a lot more deep tech and uni spin outs in that, as I think, because they'll be earlier stage, less revenue or no revenue. So we'll have more of a focus on IP rich and really defensible businesses. 
So in that portfolio of 11, we had our first exit at Christmas time in a company called Akai Outdoor Wear. They were a, a women's outdoor trouser brand. We got a 4.2 times return on that, which we're really pleased about. So if anyone's listening and wants to invest in our SEIS fund, <laughs> that's an example of what we can do. And then I suppose what's also important to know is we're a founding partner on the British Business Bank's Regional Angels Programme. So that means we've got a £10 million pot with them and that contributes a significant amount to each of the funding rounds that we do. Yeah, so the SEIS money will be a fund, but with our EIS investments, we actually have a portfolio of high net worth professional investors who invest in a deal-by-deal basis, as well as all of the employees across Dowscode Field Watts, which is what DSW stands for, they can also invest on each opportunity. So DSW Ventures itself is part of a wider group called Dowscode Field Watts, which does the more traditional finance stuff like corporate finance, private equity, debt advisory and wealth management, plus some other services. So all, all the employees across that group have the opportunity to invest on each deal as well. So we've got skin in the game <laughs> on all of our deals. And we're just one more point to note, we're a, we're quite a low volume investor. So 11 deals across since 2018 might not sound like much, but I think we, we've kind of gone against the spray and pray technique and it's more low quality, sorry, not low quality, <laughs> low volume, high quality. So we do quite extensive due diligence on the businesses that we invest in and we do that all ourselves and in-house and then post-investment, we're really heavily involved with our portfolio companies and in regular contact. So we, we, we don't have time to do a million deals a year. So it's probably we probably do up to between three and five EIS investments per year. Brilliant. Thanks so much. I didn't realise, obviously, we have had a few conversations and I've obviously been on the website, etc. But I didn't realise it was extensive, actually, and, and as big an organisation as that. And I always get confused around, I'm probably not the only one, maybe I am, around EIS and the SEIS format. So thank you for explaining that at the top of the podcast as well. So one of the things I was just thinking of as you were talking then is around, obviously, you are sector agnostic, which kind of means that you have to be an expert on everything, does it? And particularly with the kind of focus on deep tech, et cetera, I suppose it sort of leads me into my my next point. I think you probably are one of the first ports of calls in terms of reviewing pitch decks, et cetera, when, when they come in. I just wondered if you could kind of talk us through that process. What are you looking for? What stands out for you? And kind of what what would kind of give you a big tick and make you think that you need you, you want to kind of find out more about that business? Yeah. So just a caveat, we're not experts in everything, but I think that leads to like the the most important point, I suppose, in terms of reviewing a pitch deck. It it sounds really simple and obvious, but the deck needs to tell me is it what, what you actually do, what the company does, what problem you're solving. We receive a surprising amount where you just can't work out exactly what they do or what the USP does. I think it's because people writing the deck know the company so well and they know the industry and the market that they almost assume that everyone just gets it. But, you know, there's a lot of things that we, we've we never come across before or don't understand. So, and to put it into context, in February, we received 287 pitch decks and we're a team of four and it's my job to process all of these. <laughs> so if it's, if it's taken us as a team too long to work out what the business actually does it's not really a good first impression and you think 
how can this person sell to customers if you, they can't explain what they do in a deck or even, and you go on the website and try and work it out from there. But, you know, that's quite time consuming. So you think, how can they sell this product in future? So I think a bit of advice is there's, there's no need to overcomplicate decks with jargon and acronyms that the average person wouldn't know. So like we are sex generalists. So I think founders need to remember to keep the deck simple and understandable like we absolutely do want to delve into the deep technical stuff once we've progressed at maybe after the first call or even at the term sheet stage. But on the first impression, the information needs to be digestible and understandable. You know, what 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 is it that you're doing? Why is it a problem? And I don't I shouldn't need to have a PhD to understand the business. And another point I would add as well. So, well, I feel like this isn't gonna brought up too much, but the length of the deck, there's no there's no need for a pitch deck to be more than around 20 slides, maybe, give or take. I mean, I've recently received pitch decks before with 70 slides, but like I said, we, we, we see over 200, 250 a month. So we don't have time to review 70 slides for 250 companies a month. So I think founders just need to be remembered to be concise and get the key messages across really and I suppose the the things that we actually discuss in a meeting when we're reviewing the deck is mainly what do they do is is this a problem that exists and is there a big market for this problem uh, does it sound reasonable is there any sort of traction and do, do the founders look like they've got the right experience behind them f- for this market as well as it, does it sound like it's defensible is there any IP yeah, interesting. It's funny, actually, we've not really talked a lot on the podcast around IP, but it is obviously something that's kind of a, a huge flag for you to look at at that early stage for investors and, and from an investment point of view, and obviously something that founders really need to be thinking about from, from day one, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So is it as simple as, I, I can't believe you've got like 281 to go through. And I think, you know, anyone listening to this must surely understand that if the problem isn't clearly articulated there, you absolutely haven't got the time for you to go around digging, trying to find out what it is. So it is a case of a yes, a yes, no. Is it a case of literally putting into two piles a yes and a, and a no pile and then taking the yes pile back internally for a discussion? So I'd say we kind of have like a pre-screening meeting at the end of the week. So sorry, what happens is every Monday we have a team meeting and that's where we're all together and we'll all go through all the applicants that have come in from the previous week. So prior to that, myself and Ellie, my colleague, we'll look at all the applicants and that's just like a pre-screening process where we'll get rid of any that just don't fit our criteria at all. So might have come in from overseas, the round size might be way too big for what we would invest in. They might not be EIS or SEIS qualifying and they're immediate no's. But in that process, we are looking for the stuff that, so they're the immediate no's. Everything else is up for debate. And we do try and, we don't do a pros and cons list, but we we try and make stuff work, you know, like what will make this investable for us? Do, how many of the the things that we like, that we usually like, how many of those does it tick sort of thing? And how does that weigh up against the the concerns or the or the unknowns essentially? So, I'd say with the ones where we don't understand fully what they do, they still make it through to the like team review, but more of like a, a safety net thing because we don't want to miss out on stuff. It might be our lack of 
sector knowledge and someone else or even even an investor from our portfolio might know tons about that sector and they might understand the problem. So it can always be something that we can refer to them. And, and sometimes if we don't fully understand it we, and there is traction, I'd say something, yeah, traction, if if we don't really get what's going on, but, you know, they seem to have got some momentum, well, we kind of think, oh, it's, maybe it is worth a call because maybe we just don't understand, but but we should understand what's going on. So we kind of often will allow founders to that chance to to explain and you know try and hear it in their own words yeah yeah that's really interesting I think one of the things you were you were just saying as well around the ones that you would instantly discount because they don't fit into your portfolio again is back around founders doing the research and not adopting a spray and pray approach from a founder point of view in terms of sending the deck off we all know founders get really despondent when they say I've sent my deck out to over a hundred VCs or 100 investors and no one's come back to me but if 95 of those were not ever going to invest it's wasted energy isn't it and you end up feeling really despondent so really interesting in terms of kind of the next step obviously then you discuss that internally and then I presume then you jump on a call with the founders what type of thing would you be deep diving in at that stage not with the need to prep or so I suppose the We've reviewed the deck and we will review it in a fair amount of detail ahead of a call. So we're not we're not looking for founders to represent the deck to us and talk us through it. That that would be a waste of an hour for us, really. So it is it is that deep dive into all the information we've been presented so far and consolidating that. So and just hearing it in their own words. So like the founder or management team, they're just as much of an important part of the investment as the product. Or the IP itself. So we will cover a lot on the team's background just to make sure we're investing in the right founders and management. So for us, it's really important to have a good relationship with the management team, just because we are so heavily involved post-investment. So we, we quite like founders that are collaborative, open to professional debate, and, and have got a strong growth mindset. And then we, we don't spend the whole time grilling them as a person, though, on the call. Well, We'll delve into the stuff that is the most important thing. So just really trying to get our heads around the technology and what it actually does, why a customer w- would use it or, or buy it, understand the IP, so what type of protection they have or might have in the future and what's defensible. Often in a pitch deck, you'll get you'll get a competitor matrix, but there won't be much narrative alongside it. It'll just be, you know, the ticks and crosses of the features. So We'll spend a lot of time asking them about, about competition and their thoughts on on competition, as well as what sort of customer validation they've got. Is there any traction? And yeah, that's that's that. Those are the key things I would say. Yeah, and then what I would say as well, we'd follow up requesting financial model and the cap table. So the cap table and the actual funding round details is another point that we'd like we'd cover. So understanding if there's any potential co-investors involved, who's invested historically, that type of thing. Well, thank you. And just to go back onto your first point around working with the founders, obviously we've talked a lot on the podcast and from an EHE point of view around founders choosing the right investors and people that are going to add value to their business. But actually from an investor point of view, you've got to choose the right founders because like you say, you do work really closely with them. It's not a kind of ship them in, ship them out type of thing. So I imagine there probably have been scenarios where potentially there has been a brilliant business on paper, but perhaps the management team or the founders you felt weren't 
quite the right fit for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I suppose one, one aspect of it is, is this someone that we can collaborate with and, you know, it'll be an enjoyable experience having a monthly board meeting with them plus all the other contact. Not in a personal way, but you do have to work closely together and if things are going wrong, it needs to be the type of person that reacts in a positive way to those scenarios in a collaborative way. And equally, I think a lot of the time, we can end up turning down a business, not because the technology isn't interesting or exciting, but maybe the founder themselves hasn't been great at communicating it. So it's, it's all it, the, the communication piece is a massive thing. So just what I think, so maybe you might be on a call and you're, you're asking them questions and it's just not a clear or a, or a direct answer. That can be quite frustrating. So it, it makes you feel like, oh, will they be able to sell this product? Are they the right person to be the commercial lead to take this forward? And we ourselves, because of the way that we raise their EIS money, if a founder can't explain their business clearly to me, I've got to write a 30 plus page investment paper on it. And I need to communicate what they do to other people as well. So it, it's almost like a blocker. Just think, oh, this will this will be a real struggle pulling the right information out of this person. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see, you know, if things do become a bit turbulent later on. You, you're absolutely right in thinking, how would relationships play out? One of the things I'd just written down before when you were sort of giving a bit of an intro about DSW is is that you work really closely with your portfolio so that's really important I just wondered what kind of ongoing support do you offer particularly if things perhaps aren't going well and what advice do you give to founders who perhaps do find themselves in an investment scenario but don't feel that they're going to hit the plan because of you know circumstances out of their control etc yeah I suppose our support I would say it starts pre-investment really it starts in that due diligence process so I can't really think of a, a time where we've received a financial model and it's and it's stayed the same and come out the <laughs> come out of the end of due diligence looking the exact same. But I think we work quite collaborative, and that's why we like founders that are open to kind of debate and being collaborative with us. Because you know, we might find, as an example, we might find in a business plan, we might dig into a revenue line and kind of think oh well this this doesn't actually look like a very profitable revenue line why do you have this and is it something that you need moving forward so like by the end of the due diligence that's a really basic example but like by the end of the due diligence process that might have been taken out of there or do you need this higher at this point or do you need them a bit sooner do you need them a bit later at what point do you need this higher so often we'll help we'll work really closely with management on that original business plan when you asked, you know, what what should they do if it's <laughs> going wrong and not going to plan? I'm not sure there's any startup that's, you know, put a financial model together and it, it gone exactly to plan. So we're not harsh in that respect. We know that things don't don't happen as smoothly as, as you would like. And then post-investments, we take a board observer seat. So we're still going to the monthly board meetings, but we're heavily involved in those. We, we probably... I'd say, well, <laughs> I, I don't want to say, say anything too bad, but I'd say we we like to think that we're, you know, the most knowledgeable investor on, around the table about the business, just because of the extent of due diligence that we do. And as the other ways in which we support the businesses, you know, if they're looking for the next fundraise, we've got 
loads of connections that we can help introduce them to as well as we help on a recruitment basis as well so we've got all the investors in our portfolio a lot of them are former founders or you know senior management roles sometimes they might be suitable for a board seat often we'll do our own research so one of our most recent investments into Hike SEO we found the person that we ended up hiring for the chair role and he was former COO of Content Cal, which was sold to Adobe fairly recently. And he's taken on that role and he was like the perfect fit for for him. And we just kind of just did a bit of desktop research for them. And that's worked out really well. Bro. So I think what we're seeing today is the huge value the right investor can bring to a business. So it's not a case of getting a check and walking away, is it? You've just talked about all those different things about things going wrong maybe not hitting plan but the observer seat you take on the board supporting with future investments supporting with obviously all the competitor knowledge that you build up and then helping plug those those gaps so investment you know certainly from your point of view or your business point of view is not a case of like handing over a check and leaving the founders to it which is really interesting and I think you know I'm sure everybody listening to this would love the opportunity to have that valuable input in, into the business as well as the funding. I think the final thing I was just going to ask you, and it's going to be like a really blanket question, so you can be as detailed or as broad as you like, is with your kind of investment hat on, if you could give some advice to founders that are looking to secure investment and, and grow fast, what what advice would you give? Oh, Yeah, that is a good question. I'd say get an advisor or a non-exec with relevant experience, whether I mean, it doesn't have to be in your exact industry. If you're a SaaS business and you don't don't have experience of scaling up a SaaS platform before, find someone who does and just, and someone who's been through the fundraising process before, like that will be a massive weight off your shoulders just to have someone there to help you and give you advice, iron out the questions and pitfalls that you might come across before going out to raise. I'd also say just be prepared and plan ahead you know you might have prepared a pitch deck but have have like a small data room ready have your financial model ready and the sort of information that investors want to look at if they progress past the first call I mean I'm sure there's tons of lists out there of like what what do you need in a in a data room but I think the first sort of documents we ask for after a pitch deck would be financial model we, we do often ask for the written business plan if there is one. I think they they might be a bit old-fashioned these days. I don't know, but often, you know, we get all the information about the company from calls. So, you know, it's me rapidly writing notes. And if people talk as fast as I do on calls, it's impossible to write everything down. So a business plan can doesn't have to cover absolutely everything, but it can really help consolidate our knowledge and just understand what you do and be like a good place for us to refer back to if we're not sure on something about the business. And then we also ask for a copy of the share capital table. If you've got patents, we'd want we'd want to see the, the the patent documents as well. I suppose those are just the the first things I can think of in my head. Oh, and a more detailed competitor matrix, just to make sure that you understand what what you're up against in the market, really. And then maybe one final point, which I feel like I've, I've reiterated throughout everything I've said, but just be really clear in your communication. You know, in the pitch deck, properly explain what you do. If you're exchanging emails, if you had a call with an investor and you say, "I'll send you my model by Friday." 
send it by Friday or let them know if it's not going to come on time because it just that's not the sort of thing that would make an investor not sending something on time wouldn't make them say no to you but if they're a bit you know on the edge not sure stuff like that can leave a bad taste or you know it it doesn't it doesn't reflect well yeah but it's, it's not it's never a deal breaker but it can be well, sometimes it can be the final nail in the coffin. Just be just be reliable in your communications, really. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. That was really interesting because I think, you know, we know how how fast founders work and particularly when you are looking at investment, it's hard to juggle all the balls. But like you say, sometimes the the kind of hygiene factors and the best practices are the things that, that stand you in good stead. And, uh, you know, even if the investment doesn't progress, you end up leaving with a good impression, you know, and, you know, people will, could always come back at a later date then. Yeah, so, I just had, sorry, about the good impression, as hard as it might be as well, if if you are turned down by an investor, send in a reply to say, thanks for your time reviewing the deck. Like it could make the difference one day in the future. We've got an internal system where we store all our pitch decks but all of our emails sync to it so you know if we if we if you come back again and we see oh they sent a really nice email last time <laughs> like yeah that, yeah that, or, um, or on the other hand they sent a really rude email yeah, last time we've and got yeah those logged <laughs> yeah good no it's really interesting I don't think people will think about that were they but I when you started talking I did wonder where you were going whether you were going to say like people were going to email back saying well it's your loss yeah. I'll see you when we take over the world which you probably have had some of those emails but like you say you never know the world of investment and founders can be very small sometimes can't it so yeah you definitely need to kind of handle yourself professionally at all stages of the, the conversations that was so interesting Emma thank you so much you've really given us a clear walkthrough of like the investment process but also all the added value stuff that DSW bring as well which I think is really interesting and definitely gives founders food for thought and and should be thinking about when they're going through the investment process you know what else are they going to get over and above just a check of money because that's not the be all and end all is it so thank you that was really interesting i hope everybody else enjoyed it stay tuned we'll have another guest next week thank you very much emma really appreciate your time thank you see you later Welcome to Fast Growth Stories, the straight-talking guide for entrepreneurs who want to grow quickly and secure funding. Brought to you by EHE, where entrepreneurs help entrepreneurs.